So we're starting tonight a series, a Bible study, verse by verse, through the letters of John. And we'll start with 1 John 1 tonight. And I'll just start here. Um, it, toward the end of her life, in the last, I guess, 20 years of her life, my grandmother's best friend in the world was a lady named Mary. And that was interesting because my grandma always lived her whole life in the little unincorporated community outside Yoakum, Texas, kind of suburban Yoakum, right? The greater Yoakum area. That's a joke. It, I mean, it, it's Hope, Texas. All there is there is a Methodist church and a Baptist church, and the Methodist church has to share their pastor with the church in Yoakum. So this is how small that community is. Um, Mary was not from there. She and her husband, Jack, moved in from outside and ordinarily, for as much as I love people from the country, and I am one, we can be a little standoffish towards people from outside, right? It takes a long time to fit in. And yet Mary was such a sweetheart. She endeared herself to my grandmother so much, they became best friends. And when I was pastor of that church for a couple of years, right out of seminary, one of the things I learned about Mary that I hadn't known before was that she doubted her own salvation terribly. Came up all the time. She'd never shared that before, but now that I was her pastor, she did. And the irony to me was, I didn't know anybody outside of maybe my mom and my wife who were more of an example of what I thought a Christian should be than Mary. And yet, she was just not sure that she was really saved. And here I was, fresh out of seminary. I mean, I, was, I turned 26 basically a couple of weeks before I became pastor of that church, if you can imagine. This is how young, wet behind the ears I was. I didn't really know what to say to her except to tell her, Mary, I've known you for years and I'm, I'm sure you're saved. That didn't help because she knows I'm not God. Well, Mary did pass away and I did her funeral and I know that she has assurance now because she's in His presence. But I bring all that up because there might be some of you in this room who feel that way too. In my experience, there are quite a few Christians who struggle with that. And this is a cynical thing to say, but it's never the right ones. <laughs> there are some that I wish would struggle a little more so they'd repent and get right. It's never those people. That's between us, right? <laughs> but I bring that up because whenever people study or preach out of First John, they always, well, at least in my experience, they all always go directly to 1 John 5.13 and say, if you want to know why this book exists, this is it. Because John, 1 John 5.13 says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And so preachers and Bible teachers will say, John has told us why he wrote this letter, so if you struggle with assurance... If you struggle with the idea that you may not be saved, this is the book for you. This will assure you of your salvation. But John's methods are very different than mine were with Mary because the situation is completely different. Mary had a, a lack of assurance because she was just hypersensitive to her own sinfulness. She saw how far from Christ she still was. Much as we may have looked at her and said she was the sweetest and most sincere Christian, she still knew that she had a long way to go, and that bothered her. And she asked questions like, if I'm truly saved, why do I still struggle with this? The people John was writing to had a very different kind of reason for worrying about their salvation. That's what I want to explain to you 
next before we actually start reading the Scripture. Before I say that, let me also point out the letters of John are very different than the letters of Paul. One of the things you notice if you study the letters of Paul in the New Testament is he gives us lots of personal information. He starts every letter out by saying, I'm, I am Paul, uh, I'm from here, and this is what I do, and here's my partners, and I'm writing to you in Colossae, in Galatia, in Rome, in Ephesus, in Corinth. He names a lot of people. He says, hey, say hi to uh, Demetrius for me. Say hi to Phoebe for me. Uh, remember when we ate together in your house. There's none of that in the letters of John. John doesn't even name himself in any of his letters, or in the book of Revelation, which you could argue is a letter of a sort, or in the Gospel of John. He doesn't mention the people's names he's writing to for the most part. He does not mention the cities to which he is writing. And I say all that to say, therefore, the information that I usually give when we start one of these studies, oh, this was written at this period to these people, and here's what was going on in their lives, we don't know as much. So I can't be as certain. We don't know exactly where this was written or when. Here's what we do know. This is in your notes. Three facts we know. Number one, early Christian tradition says that John preached in and around the city of Ephesus and that he lived until around 100 AD, which meant he was probably close to 100 when he died. Uh, Ephesus is in modern-day Turkey. It was one of the major churches in the early church. One of the letters of the Revelation is written to them. Paul founded that church. Timothy preached there at one point. John preached in Ephesus uh, and had uh, other churches that he looked after in that area, similar to the way Paul did. Fact number two, based on the uh, words of 1 John itself, we know part of the situation that he was addressing here is that there were respected people in the churches he had planted and looked after who had walked away. Now, they wouldn't have said they'd walked away from the faith. They would have said, we found the true faith. They had, they had found a new teaching that superseded in their minds the teaching of the apostles that was, quote-unquote, the real truth, and therefore they had left the churches of the apostles and had formed their own churches, and now we're trying to draw Christians away. Why would you listen to those guys anymore? They're, the, they're yesterday's news. We've got the real truth. We've got the updated truth. That's the immediate uh, occasion why John wrote this letter. And number three, we know this for a fact, there was a false teacher alive at the same time this was being written, contemporary with John, whose name was Serenthus. Serenthus believed, among other things, that Jesus and the Christ were two different figures. So what I mean by that is, he believed there was a man named Jesus, he believed that that Jesus was a good person, maybe the best person, uh, so good, in fact, that when he was baptized by John the Baptist, the, the dove, the Holy Spirit came down from heaven, and to Serenthus, the way Serenthus taught, that's when he became the Christ. Before that, he was just a man. And that was God sending his presence to inhabit the earthly Jesus. And then that presence of Jesus, that presence of the Christ, left him before the cross, so that the man who died on the cross was just a human Jesus, not divine. This is what Serenthus taught. Among other things, that was what he taught. And the reason I bring that up, some of the things John addresses here sound similar to that. 
Like he's trying to refute that kind of teaching. Incidentally, this isn't in your notes, but there is a legend that one day John was in the bathhouse, which that was a common thing back then in the Greco-Roman world. It's like going to the gym today. John was in the bathhouse. He sees Serenthus come in in his towel, and John says, I am out of here. I don't want to be in the same room with that heretic. So John and this man apparently knew each other, and John did not agree with him. So here's what we conclude based on all those facts. John is writing to people who were shaken by finding out that men they trusted, teachers they looked up to, now were teaching something different. And you, you can imagine how destabilizing that would be, especially if you weren't yourself steeped in the Word of God. You'd spent your whole life, your whole Christian life, just listening to the apostles or to your other Bible teachers, and now some of those teachers are saying, you know, forget what I told you before. I found something even better. Well, what do you, what do you believe at that point? Some of you have experienced some aspect of this as you've seen... Uh, respected preachers be exposed as charlatans or as immoral people, or maybe just stumble. And you start to say, well, is everything they told me before true, or can I no longer believe that? So this is the kind of, uh, this is the reason John feels that he, these people need assurance. It's not that they're worried about their own sin, it's that they're not sure what the truth is anymore. So here in the first chapter, John gives us three steps to take when our confidence in the truth is shaken. When we have doubts about the veracity of God's Word or what we've been taught about the Gospel. Okay? So let's start with the first one. First one, whenever you're worried about the truth, get to know the real Jesus better. Focus on Him. Verses 1-4, through four, right at the beginning of the letter. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life that was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have faith, have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Notice how John goes to great lengths to talk about his personal experience with Jesus. Now again, we don't know if he's addressing this false teacher named Serenthus, but he's, te he's addressing some kind of false teaching. And what he's saying is, you want to know who to believe? I actually walked with Jesus. I saw his miracles. We slept on the same ground. We shared the same meals. I mean, when he says, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands, that's a, that's a Greek word that means our hands have handled him, right? We, we've hugged each other. We've held hands in prayer. We've, we've you know, maybe, maybe wrestled for fun, maybe even fought. We don't know. We, we, have, we know him. So don't listen to someone who's never met him when I'm telling you I knew the man and I knew that he was more than just a man. And perhaps, I, I'm going to throw another, wrench in, uh, another wrinkle into this, he's addressing another separate heresy. There was actually a teaching in that time among some that, you know, Jesus, he really was divine, but he wasn't really human. I mean, he was probably like, more like a spirit. He looked human, but he, what, he didn't have flesh and blood. 
Now you might ask, well, why would that be an attractive thing to teach? This is hard for us to understand. But in that time, Greek philosophy determined so much of the way people thought. And maybe it'll help for us to understand. We feel, every one of us gains new knowledge through certain filters, right? If you've grown up in America, in, in the southern United States especially, there are certain values you take for granted. And when you read the scriptures, you see those values expressed there. It's harder for you to see things that contradict the values you've been raised with, right? So if you were raised to believe that people of one race should stick together, and then when you read in the Scriptures that in Christ uh, there's no Jew or Gentile, no slave or free, all are one in Christ Jesus, it takes longer for you to get that through your skull because it goes against the way you were raised, right? So for people in this culture, some of them grew up in a cultural context where everybody believed that physical matter is just bad, that physical stuff is dirty. And the, the best thing you can hope for is that you'll get, you'll get snatched out of this body and go to some spiritual place where you can just be a spirit floating in the ether because then you won't have to deal with all this dirty, messy, sweaty, stinky flesh. This is, this is the way they thought. That's the ultimate dream. And so... Based on that, they decided, well, then, if God was going to come to earth, He surely wouldn't actually take on human flesh, because God's righteous. He wouldn't want to dirty Himself with a, an actual human body that has all these horrible human functions. What John is saying is, no, we've been with the man. We heard Him speak. We put our arms around Him. He was flesh and blood. Remember one of the things Jesus did when they saw him on the beach. What did he do? He ate a piece of fish. Now, I don't know much about spirits, but I don't think they can eat. Jesus was real. He was a real human being. Our church and every church that calls itself Christian has to continually ask itself, are we pointing people to the real Jesus? It is so easy. You would think, well, obviously we are. It is so easy to slip into a mind mindset of, of saying, well, what we're really doing is promoting ourselves as the best church in town. Or what we're really doing is promoting Baptists as the best of all Christian denominations. Nobody's getting saved by going to First Baptist Church. That's not, that's not the answer. We have to Say, are people hearing about Jesus from us? Are we pointing people to Him? When they come on Wednesday night, when they come on Sunday morning, do they leave, if not knowing anything else, knowing, okay, Jesus is who I need to follow if I want salvation. Tim Keller, who died this past summer, pastored many years in New York, and uh, so he'd get lots of questions from unbelievers who would visit his churches, his church, uh, and they'd never gone to church before they'd they, they'd heard all kinds of things about Christianity that weren't true, and then they went to, these to his church and said, well, you people aren't as crazy as I thought, but I still don't understand why a God who's as good as you say He is would allow such terrible things to happen. And they would say things like, I saw this thing on the news about this guy who, who shot up a school, or I saw this thing on the news about a, a tsunami that killed 100,000 people. How can God let these things happen? And Keller would always say, that's a valid question. And we can talk about that. But let me ask you first a question. 
do you believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead? And they would say, well, what does that have to do with anything? And he said, well, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then everything I'm about to tell you is a lie anyway. So why would you care what I have to say? But if Jesus did rise from the dead, then he is the Son of God, then he is everything the Bible said he was, therefore you have to take everything he said as truth. So you need to start there before you get off into the weeds of the, of the complicated questions that, that don't have anything to do with our salvation. You need to ask the central question, who was Jesus? Know the real Jesus. Focus on him. When you doubt, read the Gospels. When you doubt, talk to him. Ask him to help you. All right, second thing John advises is have fellowship with each other. Be among the people of God. One of the disturbing things I see is when people struggle with their faith, with doubts, with questions, with just being emotional because they're going through grief, is they stop going to church. I remember one woman saying to me, a very good friend of mine, in fact, I, I can't be in church because every time I go in there, I feel like crying. And I don't want to sit there and cry. And I said, Becky, what better place to cry? I know you don't want to draw attention to yourself, but I mean, if, if there's ever been a time when it's good for people to pay attention to you, it's now. For them to know that you're struggling, now's the time. John writes in verse 5, This is the message we have from Him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. This is why I'm calling this study Walking in the Light. But let's look at this next verse. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. That idea of walking in the light is such a beautiful way to picture the Christian life because what it implies is if we're not walking with Jesus, we're walking in darkness. Now all of us have experienced that, right? Maybe uh, you come home and you were supposed to have left a light on in your house, but you forgot. And your cell phone's dead, so you can't pull that out, and you're just stumbling around. Maybe you go to a new place. You're staying at a friend's house, or you're staying in a hotel. You can't find the light switch, and you're staggering around. What happens when you walk in the darkness? A lot of bad things, right? You, you hurt yourself. You hurt other people. You don't know where you're going. You walk one way and, and finally the light turns on and you realize you're way off. I mean, nothing good happens when you walk in darkness. But when you walk in the light, you're safe. When you walk in the light, you know where you're going. When you walk in the light, you have assurance. You know things. That's a great picture of the Christian life. And, and what John says here is very important because one of the, I mentioned at the beginning, some of those filters we read things through that we're not even aware of, one of them is individualism. We live in a culture that stresses the individual. I'll, tell, I'll give you a perfect example of what I'm talking about. In a lot of the world, a young man or woman growing up, you ask them what they want to do when they grow up, their first consideration is, well, what, what do my mom and dad want me to do? What would be good for my family? My, my dad has always been a carpenter. He's, he wants me to follow in his footsteps. Or, or my mom has always been a midwife, and, and she's trained me to do that, so that's what I'm going to do. Uh, my, my parents want me to be an attorney so I can provide for the whole family, and I'm, I'm very good at school, so that's what I'm going to do. This is the way people make decisions in a lot of the world. In America, we don't make decisions that way. In America, in fact, if, if a, 
a young person came to almost anybody in this room and said, my parents want me to be a lawyer, but I don't even like the law. I, I, really, I really want to be a teacher in an inner city school because I think that's where I can make a difference. I think most of us would say, go do what you feel called to do and your parents will love you anyway. Because that's the way we think. I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm saying that's, that's the culture we live in. We live in an individualistic culture that says everyone has to do what they see as right in their own eyes. Every, everybody has to follow their own value system and anybody who tries to stop you is wrong. And so we tend to read the Bible as if it is God's word to us as individuals only. And yeah, I know I'm supposed to go to church, but I don't really see the point. I go, but okay, if I can't make it, no big deal. And over and over over again, the Bible says, don't stop gathering together. Over and over and over again, the Bible says, hey, you're part of the body of Christ. The thought of not going to church is like uh, your, your left kidney saying, I don't think I want to be a part of the body anymore. I mean, he, right here, John says, if you walk in the light, you'll have fellowship with one another. Now, I know we as Baptists use the term fellowship to mean a, a place in the church where you have, uh, we would call them parties, but we're Christians. Um, you know, where you have gatherings, where you have wedding rehearsals and wedding receptions and and Sunday school fellowships. But the word, the actual Greek word, originally meant a partnership in a business where you've signed a contract, where you are you're joined at the hip. And it became, in Christian parlance in the New Testament, it became this idea of oneness. We are yoked together with these people. And that's why I say this all the time. Most of the time when you see the word you, Y-O-U in the Bible, it really should be translated y'all because it's a plural you. If most of the translators of the New Testament had been from the southern United States, it would say y'all. And what he's saying here is, you want to know if you're walking in the light? If you're walking in the light, you have fellowship with each other. If you don't have fellowship with your brothers and sisters, maybe it's because you're not really following Jesus. And if you're struggling right now, the last thing in the world you should do is walk away from the body of Christ. I'll just tell you one more story, just kind of a, a funny along these lines. So uh, not long after I pastored the church I grew up in, I, I went to a, a, a bigger, quote-unquote, bigger church. By bigger, I mean we had 120 people on Sundays. Um, I was still very young. And there were a couple of key people in our church that got upset about some, a decision that we made as a church in business meeting. Um, and they left. And then there was another church down the road that got mad at their pastor. New pastor came in, they didn't like him, and so a whole group of them left. And then a third church, they had an, a, an outright split. And these are all churches in the same county, right? Well, I heard through the grapevine that those three groups of people got together and said, let's form our own church. That's all I heard. Our director of missions called me one day, and he said, uh, tell me what you know about this new Unity Baptist Church. And I died laughing. He said, what? I said, that is the most ironic name I've ever heard. <laughs> but if that isn't a Baptist story, I don't know what is. We aren't known 
for abiding by the scriptures that command us to be unified, to practice real biblical fellowship, but we, we should. All right, number three. Confess your sins. And you might say, well, if I'm struggling and, and I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with my assurance of salvation, I'm struggling with doubts about the truth of scripture, why would I confess sin? I mean, that makes it sound like it's my fault. Here's what he says in verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. I think he's addressing two things here. One of which is my, my old friend Mary. But the first thing he's addressing is this teaching, again, we know this. We know this was in existence in that time. Uh, it was trying to draw people astray. This teaching that says, if you reach an, a certain stage of enlightenment. Okay, let me, let me start fresh. If, have, raise your hand if you've ever heard the term Gnostic. Okay. About half of you. Gnostic. It's spelled G-N-O-S-T-I-C. Gnostic. You've probably heard it mentioned in Bible studies or sermons. I'm not going to go into, not that I, I'm an expert on it, what it all is about, but it was a big deal. It was a big heresy in the, in the early centuries of the church. One of their teachings, actually, this will help. The term Gnostic comes from the, the Greek term gnosis, which means knowledge. The Gnostics believed that you could be a Christian, that's fine, but if you gained this secret superior knowledge, then you were one of the chosen. You were one of the, the real OG believers, right? You were, you were it. They also believed that if you attained that secret knowledge and that enlightenment, then it was impossible for you to sin. Not that you, your character had changed, but now that you have this knowledge, you can do whatever you want. It's not sin if you do it. Some of you are old enough to remember when a certain president said that to an interviewer after he had uh, gotten into trouble for some things he did. And the interviewer said, hey, this and this and this you did were illegal. And he said, well, but when the president does it, it's not illegal. Oh, actually it is. It's one of the good things about America is it's illegal for everybody. John is saying, listen, if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself and the truth is not in us. He is directly addressing that. So these people in these churches who are confused, perhaps that's one of the things they had heard their former teachers say. Listen, all of y'all over there trying to live a moral life. All you got to do is come to my church where we preach the truth. And once you have the truth, you can live any way you want. And John says, oh no. No, that's how you know they're lying. Because if you say you have no sin, the truth is not in you. But then he addresses in verse 9, it's one of the great, great verses in the New Testament. People like my friend Mary, if you confess your sin, He is faithful and just to forgive it and to cleanse you, me, everybody of all unrighteousness. I've heard that all my life, but only recently have I asked the question, why does He say faithful and just? Why doesn't He just say, if you confess your sins, God will forgive it? Instead, he says, God is faithful and just to forgive. I think the reason why is because what is forgiveness? Forgiveness is when you tell somebody 
you don't have to pay. You borrowed my car, you wrecked it, I know you feel guilty, I know you want to write me a check for the damages, I'm just telling you I forgive you, I'll eat the cost, you're my friend, I know you didn't mean it, that's forgiveness. Forgiveness is literally when we say, I won't make you pay. God looks at you and me in all of our sin. And what does He see? He sees sins that have been paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. And it would be unfaithful and unjust for Him to make us pay twice. And He's not unfaithful. And He's not unjust. He says, if you're willing to receive that forgiveness, it's yours. You don't have to pay for sins that have already been paid for. And man, that's good news. And, and how I wish that Mary and so many other really, truly redeemed people could stop listening to the lies of the devil and believe that. That they are truly forgiven. So, so why do we keep confessing? This is another issue. People sometimes ask me, well then, why do I need to keep confessing sin if, God, if Jesus already died for my sins before I ever committed them? And this is the way I look at it. I don't know if this is a good analogy or not, but this, is, this makes sense in my mind. I am sure there are things that I could do that would deeply hurt my dad, who I love. There are things that I could do that would hurt his feelings, that would make him angry, that would that would uh, put some distance between us, right? I don't know that there's anything I could possibly do that would make him stop calling me son. I know that's how I feel about my kids. But if I did something that hurt my dad, it would be a horrible thing for me to do to say, so what? I know he's going to forgive me. <laughs> I know he's going to let me come eat at, at Thanksgiving next year. I, I, I mean, why do I need to apologize? That's not how relationships work. If I love my father, if I want my relationship with him to be what it should be, even though I know he's not going to reject me and cut me off, I'm still going to go and say, Dad, I'm sorry I said what I said. I was in the wrong. I'm sorry I did what I did. I'm sorry I let you down. That's how relationships work. And that's why we confess our sins to the Father. You know, this is, this is some of the best news you will ever hear. I hope you understand that. If you've grown up in church like I have, you can get to the point where you, you, don't, you forget what a treat it is, what a, what a treasure it is to be forgiven. Those of you who got saved later in life, you probably have a better understanding emotionally because you know how good it was when you found out that forgiveness is free. But there's a story uh, that Max Lucado tells in one of his books that always helps me understand this. And again, this is another dad story. Max Lucado, as some of you know, grew up in a good Church of Christ home. And uh, like most good Church of Christ boys, he went off to Abilene Christian. Uh, as he was getting ready to go off to college, his dad handed him a credit card. And he said, son, I, I don't want you to use this except in emergencies. I don't want you to go, you know, charging food and drink on this. But if you ever get into a real situation, this is your, this is your bailout. So there came a time, I don't know what year of school Max was in, but uh, he had a girlfriend at another campus some distance away. And he decided one day, I want to see her, even though it was a school day, and he skipped all of his classes to drive over to whatever town she was in and visit her. And on the way back, he got into a wreck. 
a wreck so severe that the car had to be towed. And the tow truck driver standing there saying, okay, I need some money. So what does he do? He doesn't have any money. He spent it all on the girl, right? So he pulls out his dad's credit card. And that pays for the tow and that pays for the repair. Then he's got to call his dad. Now, some of you know the white knuckle phone call, right? To your father or your mother. And this is what he was, you, know, you got to psych yourself up for that, right? And you got to pray, okay, Lord, Jesus, come back now, now, come back now. So I don't have, that doesn't happen. And so you, you make the phone call. And I mean, he was probably even a collect call, right? To make matters even worse. And he told him the whole, he decided, I'm, I'm not even going to lie. I'm not going to make up a story. I'm going to tell him the full truth of what I did and just suffer the consequences. And he tells him the story and there's a silence. His dad said, well, Max, I'm sure you know that I'm disappointed in you. Yeah, Dad, I know. I'm sure you know you probably should never do anything like that again. Yeah, I know. And, and you know, you can pay me back for all the, the charges on that and everything, but, you know, I got to say, that's why I gave you the card. I, I knew things like this would happen, so that's why I gave it to you. So I'm not upset. And he hung up the phone and he thought, yeah, that's... That's forgiveness. That's God saying, in advance, whatever you do, I'm still going to love you. I'm still going to forgive you. I, here's, here's my card, free of charge. Whatever mess you get into, I'll pay for it. And that's forgiveness. And that's the best news you'll ever hear. So let's, let's pray right now. Um, before we pray, let me just challenge you to do this. Um, a lot of us, I'm sure all of us, have people in our lives that don't know this good news. They don't understand forgiveness. They maybe have heard it and don't believe it. Um, I want you to, as we pray, to mention some of those people to the Lord by name. You don't have to say it out loud. But let this be a time where you lift up some people you know who are lost. And uh, before I have us bow our heads, I want you to raise your hand if there's somebody in your life that you're particularly burdened for, that they would know the Lord. Yeah. Some of you actually know the person you're thinking of, not all of you. Let's go to them. Dear Heavenly Father, you're a good, good Father. We thank you. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would never take for granted the mercy and grace we've been given, the, the love that was poured out upon us at the cross. And Lord, right now I lift up these friends, family members, neighbors, co-workers that we are burdened for. We pray, Lord, that you would give us guidance in how we can relate to them what words to say, what not to say. Lord, also help us to see times when we need to just keep silent. I pray, Father, that You would send other people to them, to witness to them. I pray that there would be some believer out there for each of the people we're concerned about. Some believer would take them on as a personal project to just love them and share the Gospel with them. Lord, I pray Your Holy Spirit would convict them of sin. Convict them of 
your grace and how wonderful the gospel is. And I pray that we would see them saved. Lord, show us what to do. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Amen.